I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program. In our first segment, we'll be speaking with Tom Hartman, well-known progressive radio host and the author of the Hidden History of America series. The latest entry in that series, entitled The Hidden History of American Democracy, is out now. And in it, Tom argues that the ideals of democracy are in the veins of America's culture and history. We'll be discussing that in the conversation to follow. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Tom Hartman. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy speaking with. Uh, legendary progressive radio host and author of the new book, The Hidden History of American Democracy, part of a long-running series now, The Hidden History Series. Uh, Tom Hartman, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Joe? I'm doing great, and I'm excited to be talking with you about The Hidden History of American Democracy. This is what the, I mean, how many titles are there now in the series? Uh, This is the ninth book. Wow. They're great little uh, sort of pocket-sized books that give you, you know, a a sort of overview of things from a progressive perspective, and I highly recommend them. Uh, I guess where I want to start with this book is uh, you open the book by saying democracy is in our genes. Maybe you can explain what you mean by that. Yeah. uh, In in fact, this is one of the the myths that I wanted to, uh, to go head on, you know, in the book. Is the idea that democracy is some weird thing that some brilliant, uh, you know, old white guy in Greece three thousand years ago figured out, and uh, therefore we need to all kind of bend and contort ourselves into, uh, uh, you know, in order to make it happen? 
And uh, in fact, democracy is intrinsic to our humanity. It's it's uh, intrinsic to our being an animal. And um, some, I don't know, a decade or so ago, a couple of scientists in the uh, UK, uh, Conrad and Roper, uh, put together a, a proposal of a paper uh, that was published in Nature, uh, suggesting that all, virtually all decision making, group decision making among animal species, would be found to be democratic, small d democratic in nature. That you know, fifty percent plus one would would constitute a, an acceptable decision. And um, then, you know, some groups started testing this hypothesis, uh, one particularly by uh, James Randerson um, near the university. They had this herd of red deer and they put trees, cameras in the trees to watch their behavior and to see, you know, how do they decide, for example, when to go have a drink, you know, in the local watering hole. There's three watering holes. How do they know which one to pick? Um, you know, if they go too soon, uh, the deer, are, you know, animals in the herd won't get enough food. If they go too late, um, the younger or older or weaker animals might be dehydrated. It, it could be a, a health risk. Um, uh, how do you how do how do they make these decisions? And the assumption's always been that there was a an alpha animal. Um, you know, this is a real uh, big part of human mythology, basically. You know that there's a leader who everybody follows. And in fact, there you know most species do have animal alpha social species do have alpha animals, but the an alpha animals almost never are directing decision making. The only the only area where they have alpha power, where they have first choice is in the selection of sexual mates, which, you know, comports with uh, Darwinian's theory of, uh, you know, uh, natural selection and, you know, Richard Dawkins' uh, selfish gene. You know, you want the strongest to, to procreate. Um, but that has nothing to do with group decision making. So uh, I interviewed Tim Conrad and, and asked him, you know, what what happened when he published his piece and he said oh we heard from you know we heard from the bird people you know the the ichthyologists and they said uh is that ichthyologists or is that the fish whatever um uh ornithologists um we heard from the bird people that you know when, when the birds are you see a school or a flock of birds flying along and all of a sudden the whole flock just makes a left turn and it's like i always thought they had to be psychic right because you can't hear you know somebody yelling left left you know it's it's how do they know right uh, and he says, what's happening is with every wing flap, they're slightly moving their bodies to one side or another, every single animal, and they're all essentially voting on the direction they should be moving. And when 51% of them all are pointing three degrees to the left, the whole flock goes three degrees to the left. He said that a fish guy called him up and said, same thing with the schools of fish. Um, he heard from uh, bug guys who said, yeah, we see this with our ants, or we see this with balls of gnats flying in the air and moving around in the summertime. Um, uh, the primatologists, yeah, we see this with gorillas, with chimpanzees. It's you know, the group decision making is always democratic or usually democratic, except when it comes to sexual selection. And uh, what this tells us, and why this is such good news and such important good news, is that democracy is the default state of humanity. It's the it's the default state of all animals, or virtually all animals, certainly all social animals, and we are definitely a social animal. And if that's the case, then if you were to look at human societies that have been around for a long time and had plenty of time to do enough trial and error to figure out the best way to live, and I'm not talking about a few hundred years or even a few thousand years, but tens of thousands of years, we've been you know, fully developed with a brain like we have right now for about 300,000 years on this planet. 
And when you look at those societies that actually have roots that go back, you know, Native Americans, uh, 19,000 years on this continent, um, Native Africans, 300,000 years, uh, Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginals, 34,000 years. When you look at those societies, more often than not, what you find are societies that are highly functional because they are highly democratic. There was a fascinating piece. I didn't, I wish I had, you know, I wish it had been published before, went back when I was still writing the book, um, because it's not in the book. It was just published two weeks ago in Nature um, about uh, democracy in Mesoamerica. These archaeologists are doing some really deep dive work in Central America. And what they found is that there's literally hundreds, thousands of, of communities. I mean, some towns as big as hundreds of thousands of people where there is literally no evidence of either great poverty or great wealth, that these are societies that were run democratically, small d democratically, and they were run in a way that was economically egalitarian. And those societies compared to nearby societies that were still run as kingdoms or dictatorships, like the, like the Incas and the Mayans, those societies were much more resilient when it came to, to encountering disease or, or drought, or uh, even being uh, attacked or raided by nearby communities. So uh, we don't have to, you know, it's like, you know, the kind of the foundation of modern conservative thought is Thomas Hobbes's book Leviathan from 1635, in which he talked about how in, in our natural state, the life of man is nasty, short and brutish. In other words, we're, we're inherently evil and that without the iron fist of church or state, um, you know, life would become nasty, short and brutish. And it turns out that, uh, you know, Hobbes was wrong and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke, who both, you know, pointed that out, uh, were right that humanity is essentially good and that and that if we engage in group decision making, uh, we we generally get better outcomes than when we engage in um, autocratic or oligarchic decision making. One thing that I find interesting about this book, and I also see parallels to it in some of your other work, uh, such as... Um, one of my favorite books that you wrote is uh, ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World. You often point out that, uh, you know, we have to look back at the past and kind of look at the past and the ways we understand it and maybe reassess the way we understand it at times. Why do you think it's so important that we understand the past, maybe reassess uh, the way we think about it and uh, dispel sort of myths about the past that are held in the popular imagination? That's a great question. Um when I make decisions about my own life, I'm grounding them on 72 years of experience being on this earth of all the mistakes I've made. And there are a lot of them, all the successes that I've had. There've been a few, um, the, the things I've learned, uh, uh, sometimes through trial and error, sometimes by getting a bloody nose, uh, sometimes even physically. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's my personal history. It informs my my going forward. If if I were to suddenly develop amnesia and remember nothing of my, you know, of the 72 years leading up to this moment, uh, I'd be, I'd have a really hard time making any kind of reasonable decisions. So, you know, our society doesn't exist in just my single lifetime or your single lifetime. Our society has has feet, has roots that go, you know, down into the beginning of humanity. And in the modern sense, you know, the modern Western civilization is about 7,000 years old. Uh, um, you know, uh, modern, quote, civilization around the world, agricultural civilization is nine or 10,000 years old. If we don't have an understanding of the lessons that humanity learned during those 
10 during that 10,000 years, or even better during the 300,000 years that we've been on this planet, we are at the same kind of loss when it comes to good decision-making that I would be if I suddenly developed amnesia. One thing I wanted to, what's that? I was going to say, that's why I think history is so important. One thing I wanted to get into with you is uh, uh, the, the, the whole section of the book you have on the sort of secular origins of American democracy, because one of the myths I always heard growing up was, uh, oh, America is a Christian nation. Uh, so why, why was that section of the book important for you to write? Well, because America is not a Christian nation and was not conceived as a Christian nation by the people who, who wrote the Constitution. Um, I realize there's a whole Christo-fascist movement that wants to redefine America as a white Christian nation. And uh, they are ahistoric. They are, they are wrong with their history and they and they have to lie about it. They make up, literally make up quotes from the founders or cherry pick them in ways that are so out of context that they've lost all their meaning. Um, they, uh, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Ben Franklin, they were all deists. They were not even, they would not call themselves Christians. Um, uh, John Adams and James Madison, who were uh, fervent Christians. John Adams used to go to church every week. Sometimes on Sundays, he'd go to three different church services, and he took notes every Sunday. Uh, James Madison showed up at church every Sunday. He was a very active member of his church. These guys also wanted to make sure that government and religion were never entwined. Um, James Madison, the first, when he became president in 1809, Congress pre presented him with legislation to uh, reform the, the poorhouses that George Washington had started. During the Washington administration, Congress appropriated money to pay for food, shelter, housing, and medical care for indigent people in Washington, D.C. And, you know, the government was directly funding the poorhouses. And in 1809, um, some hyper-Christians, there was a religious revival going on in America at the time. Some hyper-Christians um, uh, changed this to say that the money would be appropriated to go to a church in Washington, D.C., and then the church would run the poorhouse. And Madison vetoed it. It was his first veto as president, one of his first official actions as president. And he vetoed it. His veto message is just brutal. He says, you know, this would establish a precedent uh, that would be destructive to the church and destructive to the country that, uh, you know, and and he was always convinced he and Jefferson, he was Jefferson's protege. And he and Jefferson had this running debate for 30 years. Good natured. Jefferson was convinced that if priests, you know, which was kind of the generic term for what we would today call pastors or ministers or what it wasn't a, just a Catholic thing that if a priest ever became president um, or even a senator that, you know, had significant political power, a governor of a state, democracy was screwed. And, you know, Madison didn't think that would be all that dangerous. He didn't think that, you know, uh, religious people were necessarily evil. Um, but he was concerned that if government ever started supporting religion the way that it had in Massachusetts, I mean, Massachusetts was forbidden to join the United States after the Constitution was ratified until they dropped their laws requiring mandatory taxation going to the churches and mandatory Sunday church attendance. Um, they had to do away with those laws. So, you know, um, he, uh, Madison never wanted to see that happen. He thought that that would be a disaster in the United States because it would corrupt the churches that he loved. And so did John Adams. So there was this absolute consensus across the board. Well, I shouldn't say absolute. There were there were outliers. There were people like uh, um, uh, Patrick Henry. He was the largest slave and, and apparently the most brutal slaveholder in Virginia. Um, he held over 300 people in human bondage. 
Um, and he's the guy who famously said, give me liberty or give me death. He was a, a fanatical, uh, uh, fundamentalist, evangelical Christian. Um, and he argued against the Constitution being ratified at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. In fact, it was his argument uh, that caused James Madison to change the Second Amendment's uh, language from for the security of a free nation to for the security of a free state to protect the slave patrols in Virginia on behalf of Patrick Henry. But Henry was kind of the outlier. I mean, you know, George Mason, um, you know, I, I'd have to go digging for all the names, but um, pretty much right across the board, when you read Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, you know, there's two different places in the Constitution where it says we don't have a religion and we're not going to support a religion um, as a nation. Um, George Washington negotiated a treaty with the Barbary pirates, you know, with the Muslims of uh, Northern Africa that uh, said, as America is in no way founded on Christian principles, uh, we should have basically no no fight with you guys, with you Muslims. Uh, Washington negotiated it. It was largely written by Alexander Hamilton, and it was signed by John Adams when he became president. He was, you know, the second president. So there was a long history of this throughout the founding era. And, um, you know, we've been through a few religious revivals in America, and there, we've been through numerous experiments trying to insert religion into politics. Probably the largest were, were um, the official uh, uh, recognition of Christianity in the Deep South during the Confederate era during from the 1830s to the 1860s because they used that to convince slaves and slave people that God intended it to be this way. Slavery is in the Bible. You know, Paul says, treat your slaves nicely. Um, but by and large, uh, and, and there was another big revival in the, in the 1950s that was part of Joe McCarthy's anti-communist, you know, the godless communists thing. And that was when we put uh, in God we trust on our currency. Um, and uh, added uh, one nation under God to the uh, Pledge, of uh, Pledge of Allegiance. But outside of that, uh, you know, we've we've done a relatively good job historically of keeping religion separate from politics. Uh, certainly, um, I mean, the last Republican president to not just respect that ideal, but honor it was Dwight Eisenhower. And uh, he was quite emphatic about that. Now, you know, you've ever since the, the merging of church and state in the Reagan campaign, Reagan's campaign brought in his running mate, George Herbert Walker Bush's son, um, you know, this kind of alcoholic ne'er-do-well uh, George W., to be their liaison with the right-wing Christian community and with Jerry Falwell and all those guys. And that was the birth of the modern religious right. And that was the, you know, Pat Robertson was building his empire and Franklin Graham was coming on the scene and, and um, Billy was fading. And, you know, Pat Robertson died a billionaire and uh, the Grahams are, are multi, multi hundred million or multi, multi millionaires anyway. And, and uh, the Falwells are now pretty well disgraced, but, uh, the Republicans are still in bed with the right wing Christians. And it's 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 a sad thing. It's un, it's unfortunate. It's not good for the country, not good for the party either. One part of your book that I really wanted to get into was uh, I think you have some criticisms in, in the book for certain elements of the left um, when it comes to how the left engages with uh, the founding fathers or, say, the Constitution. I know you have some criticisms of um Charles Baird, who famously wrote an economic interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, I'll be honest, <clears throat> when I was in college, I read that book and I found it very compelling. But I think you have some very uh, astute criticisms to be made of figures like Baird and how they sort of have influenced our thinking on the Founding Fathers and the Constitution. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Charles and Mary Beard were uh, Columbia University historians, uh, professors of history in the 1920s. 
And um, uh, he he wrote two books. Uh, one was the two volume History of America. And, you know, and he was kind of the Howard Zinn of his day, as it were, although he was a more mainstream historian, but he was considered a socialist and um, arguably considered himself, his wife considered herself a Marxist. And then he wrote a book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, the, the title is something like that. I don't remember the exact title. And But he did it. Uh, you read the books. And I, I have also read these books. And in fact, I read them uh, more than a decade ago, because one of the first time I wrote about them in a book called What Would Jefferson Do for a Random House? And um, he really wasn't basing his conclusions on any on any evidence. I mean, he doesn't cite actual sources, you know, from the, the debates during the Constitutional Convention to, to, you know, who ratified the convention. He just kind of makes this assumption that a bunch of rich white guys made the country and therefore they must have written the Constitution for their own benefit. And so uh, Forrest MacDonald in the 1950s, in 1956, decided to do a deep dive into this. And he went back and he looked at the ratifying conventions of all 13 states where they were where they were debating the ratification of the Constitution. And he looked back at the people who signed the Constitution. And what he found was that the majority of people who were opposed to the Constitution were the very rich. And the majority of people who were in favor of the Constitution in the states, in the ratifying conventions, and in the Constitutional Convention itself, you know, Patrick Henry walked away from it. He was one of the richest men in America. Um, uh, the, but the, but the, in the Constitutional Convention were doctors, teachers, lawyers. I mean, you know, just not rich people. You know, they were professional class men. There were, and in the ratifying conventions, there were a lot of farmers. There were a lot of, and, and just subsistence farmers that, you know, teachers, um, you know, people who were middle class or lower middle class, and they were gung ho for the constitution. So, you know, this interpretation that the, the purpose of the constitution was to support the interests of rich white people serves rich white people. As long as they can keep us convinced of this and the Supreme Court can keep interpreting it in that context, um, you know, it's a useful mythology but it's not a true mythology. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because, I mean, something that always gets brought up when people are criticizing the founding fathers is either, uh, you know, they only wanted, um, you know, white property owners to vote or the fact that some of the founders were uh, slave owners. So how, how are we to square yeah. that with the sort of progressive image that you're giving us? Well, first of all, for their time, they were insanely progressive. I mean, they took on the largest empire in the world and created the first modern democracy in history. Um, secondly, uh, most of these people were not wealthy. The richest man to have signed the Declaration of Independence was John Hancock. And he was worth, in today's dollars, $700,000. I mean, that's not rich. That's not rich at all. I mean, that, uh, and uh, Jefferson died in poverty. In bankruptcy, Washington died in 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 uh, you know out of money, bankrupt, nearly bankrupt. Um, uh, Madison, his family lost his his home within within a generation, and literally none of these people, including John Hancock, left dynastic wealth behind. There's not a single building that has their names because it's been continuously in their family since the days, you know, the the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, the the Duponts. Um, that level of aristocracy, of true wealth, literally did not exist among the men who were who were uh, lead and the women. Actually, there were women as well who were leading the 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 move to separate from England and, and create a, de a democratic republic. Um, they were they were what 
today you would call the upper middle class and the middle class by and large. And they knew it. Uh, there were dynastic families here. There was dynastic wealth here in the United States. The Johnson family had a had a castle on the Hudson River uh, with, you know, hundreds of, of retainers of, of uh, people who dressed like the Swiss guard at the Vatican. You know, uh, they imported European indentured servants. But they all fled to Canada during the Revolutionary War. Most of the really, really rich in America either went to Canada or went back to England. Um, so. Uh, also, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to be a landowner to vote. And in fact, in many of the northern states and some of the southern states, um, people who did not own land could vote. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to be white to vote. Black people were voting in the first 20 years after the ratification of the Constitution from, you know, 1789 right up and through right up through the 1810s. Black people were voting in the north. In some states, they continued to vote right up right up to and through the Civil War. Um, women were voting in many states in the North in the early years. It was probably around the 1830s that pretty much every state adopted a policy of not allowing women to vote uh, for the protection of the weaker sex. Um, so, you know, they, they were they were pretty friggin' radical. And then also the issue of the founding and, and slavery, I guess, is the other one that comes up a lot with people. Yeah. Yeah, well, there were, you know, a number of them were slaveholders and most of them, you know, uh, Madison, uh, Jefferson, they didn't they didn't just say, hey, I think I'll go out and buy some slaves. They, they you know, Je Jefferson inherited slaves from his father when his when his parents both died. His father died when he was 15 and he inherited his mother, his sister and the the, the Shadwell family farm and the, and the slaves that went along with it. Um, it was how life was done in Virginia at the time. I'm not justifying this by any means. I mean, the, the, slavery is a horrible, horrible institution. And Jefferson on multiple occasions tried to end it and paid a huge political price for that. But, um, and, and there's some interesting uh, new biographies about that, not just about him, but about a number of the founders. But it was a huge issue. It was a huge debate. Slavery was a huge debate at the Constitutional Convention. About half the people there, you know, from the northern states were openly opposed to slavery. And several of the people from the southern states were very ambivalent about it. They just didn't know how to let go of it, how to get rid of it. And that's why they put into the Constitution that in 1808, after 1808, it would be illegal to have any international slave trade. No more importation of people from Africa or anywhere else for, for the purposes of enslavement. Um, it uh, the hope was in, in the 1780s when they were writing this thing that that would begin a you know a, a generational transition away from slavery. It didn't turn out that way. Instead, the South rigidified slavery, rigidified in the South, and about 2,000 families took over the South in large part because of the cotton gin, wiped out all the small farmers, and, and turned the South into a fascist oligarchy. And then declared war on 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 America, you know, in 1861. I just had two more questions, if you have the time. The first is, sure. um, what do you hope that you know, listeners of this conversation who pick up the book, uh, what do you want them to get out of the book? What do you hope they rediscover about you know the long history of democracy and the idea of it within America? Well, it's not just a fascinating history, and and you know, uh, a, a set of. And, and pushing back on, you know, right-wing crankery these days. Um, there, the, the, the fourth part of the book, the fourth section, is a list of 21 solutions to some of the problems America is facing right now. And they're all grounded in this idea that if you 
actually believe that small d democracy is a good thing and is the way that humans and other animals, you know, best function, then a lot of these solutions become self-evident when you when you consider, you know, what you know what should be the commons. What it, why do we even create society? You know, is it to have a few rich people and a lot of poor people? Or is it for the benefit of the largest number of people? I mean, you know, why do we have governments? Why do we have economies? Why do we why do we create these rules like this? And when you understand, you know, both the original intent and the the nature of democracy, the answers to uh, an awful lot of these solutions become self-evident. And the last question I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, where do you feel that we're headed when it comes to uh, the question of American democracy, because I feel like uh, the right wing in this country has become more radical than you know ever before, in my view. And I, I almost don't even want to call it conservative anymore. It feels like just this sort of reactionary wrecking ball, if I'm honest. So it feels like democracy is really under assault more than ever before. Yeah. No, they're the 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 right in America, the MAGA Republicans anyway, are embracing nakedly and oppressing fascism. And and someone will tell you that in those words. You cut out uh, there for a second. A, so they, they were nakedly, nakedly, openly fa embracing fascism. And some will tell you that in their own words. In that you know, using that term, um, there there uh, there was a poll recently. It was a YouGov poll. It was done last year. Uh, they found that sixty two percent of Republicans think that Vladimir Putin is a better leader than uh, than Joe Biden. Only four percent of Republicans thought that Joe Biden was better than Vladimir Putin. I mean, that tells you a hell of a lot about where the GOP is at, tragically. So, you know, I, I think we need to be waking people up both to our history and to our present and 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 uh, disabusing people of this, you know, long-held conservative notion. It goes back to Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan that people are intrinsically evil and that without the uh, iron fist of church and state, as Hobbes uh, referred to it in Leviathan, that uh, the life of mankind would be nasty, brutish, and short, um, and instead look to Locke and Rousseau, you know, who were inspired by Native Americans, actually, um, who said that humanity is essentially good, and that if the majority of us engage in decision-making, we'll have good outcomes. In other words, democracy. What allows you to sort of maintain hope that we'll keep up the fight for democracy, rather than, you know, ceding it to these really, like I said, increasingly, I think, very violent and you know irrational sort of forces against democracy. I think that because it is the default the default state of humankind, that there's a certain inevitability to it, and that that gives me a lot of uh, optimism and hope. Um, I also think that there's a lot to be said for the idea of cycles of history. Um, Stanley Turchin um, talking about 40-year cycles of conservative, liberal, conservative, liberal. Um, uh, Neil Howe, he's got a new book out. The I was going to say, I just had Neil Howe on my show, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, and, and you know, I, uh, Howe uh, talks about essentially the inevitability, you know, of, of these uh, cycles coming around. And I think we're seeing that right now. I think the Zoomers are frankly going to save us. Um, although, you know, it's going to be a collaborative effort and we've all got to pitch in. But this this generation coming up is the most enlightened of my lifetime. And I, 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 I'm I very optimistic. Well, thank you again, Tom Hartman, for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope everyone will check out The Hidden History of American Democracy. Thanks again.
Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. Next up, we'll be speaking with retired Lieutenant Colonel William Astori of the Eisenhower Media Network about the risks of nuclear war in the 21st century, as well as his thoughts on Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, who recently passed away, reflections on some time Bill spent at Alamogordo and Los Alamos, Oppenheimer, and much, much more. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with William Astori. Welcome to Parallax Views. I guess I'm really happy to be speaking with, I was just telling him off the air uh, that I've actually been reading his work since I was you know, transitioning from high school uh, to college, you know, back in the sort of Bush-Obama era. Uh, William J. Astori, uh, who is a U.S. Air Force retired and history professor. So uh, how are you doing? Great, JG. Uh, thanks for having me on. So, William, I'm really glad you could come on because there is this new article uh, or study uh, out in the British Medical Journal, I believe, BMGA, uh, entitled Reducing the Risks of Nuclear War. So you have multiple medical experts coming out saying, you know, we really need to reduce uh, the risks of, you know, nuclear annihilation. And, you know, this just comes on the hills of, you know, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists saying, you know, we're closer to midnight than ever. Uh, what do you make of this uh, call to reduce the risks of nuclear war from, you know, multiple medical experts? Well, I, you know, it's it's always a good thing when when uh, people speak up against uh, nuclear war. You know, I, I remember when, when I was uh, speaking of your days in high school, when you said you first started reading me, you know, when I was in high school and my early years in, in college in the early 80s, there was a nuclear freeze movement uh, and there was a determined effort to to try to you know stop the uh the deployment of air uh air force uh cruise missiles nuclear tipped and also the pershing 2 missiles this is during the uh, reagan era where the soviet union had uh ss20s and all of these put nuclear war on on a hair trigger in the sense that they would reach their targets within minutes so there was a greater chance of possible uh miscalculation and and nuclear war so you know, here it is 40 years later, and, and yet we're still facing the, the, the danger of nuclear war. Uh, and it's a danger that's that's only become uh, sort of more, more on our minds, you know, more risky with rising tensions due to the uh, Russia-Ukraine war situation in, in Taiwan and all the rest. So I, I think it's a great thing that doctors are speaking out. I mean, doctors are respected with, within our society. If anyone knows what what radiation and burns and and all the rest can do to people, it's is doctors. So this is a very good thing. Yeah, and I was going to add. I mentioned the bulletin of the atomic scientists. They moved the hands of the doomsday clock forward to ninety seconds before midnight uh, back in January twenty twenty three. And also, you know, people like UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres has warned back in August twenty twenty two. Uh, quote, a time of nuclear danger not seen since the height of the Cold War. 
that's what he is saying. That's the point we're at right now. Uh, so I'm curious, maybe you could get into your background and how you came to your views on, you know, American militarism and the dangers it poses to us. Right. Well, my my first assignment in, in the Air Force, uh, I was in uh, Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station in Colorado Springs. Uh, and some of your listeners probably know Cheyenne Mountain from the movie uh, War Games or or from uh, other shows uh, it's been featured in. Uh, you know, I was I was in that bomb shelter that was that was tunneled out of 2000 feet of uh, solid granite and, and the little buildings inside mounted on gigantic springs. Uh, and so we did think about nuclear war uh, every day. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, United States, uh, the reason why we built that bomb shelter was because we we still think we were thought back then and probably unfortunately still think that somehow we can win a nuclear war. Uh, and that's really the the scary part, JG, is that, you know, we know a lot more now than than we did when Cheyenne Mountain was built in the 1960s. Uh, and also when when I was deployed there in the 1980s. Uh, uh, but, you know, we know that nuclear war now, if it was large enough, would would result in nuclear winter uh, where, you know, so much dust would be thrown up, you know, so, so much residue from everything that been burned by a nuclear war that we would basically interrupt uh, the, the whole process of, of, of food production uh, across the world. So we're not just talking about, you know, I know when when Daniel Ellsberg, when he wrote his book, uh, The Doomsday Machine, and the, the United States had an estimate of what nuclear war, how many people would be killed, and this is the early 1960s, uh, they said something like uh, 600 million people would be killed in a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Well, now we're talking billions of people with with a with nuclear winter. So this is uh, I, I don't even think it's arguable arguable. This is the most pressing issue, I think, uh, because I, I know climate change can 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 kill us slowly over decades, but but nuclear war can kill kill us all almost instantly over a matter of minutes, days, and months. Uh, and yet, curiously, uh, even though I know the the atomic clock has been moved uh, closer to midnight uh, than ever, yet most people aren't really paying any attention to this. Uh, and they really need to. And 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 that's certainly, you know, part of my process of, of 20 years in the Air Force and then, you know, teaching is is coming to grips with the fact that you know I was part of of uh, of a of a military that was you know prepared to fight and to wage uh, and to kill you know millions of people in in the name in the name of uh, of democracy and liberty. Uh, it, there's there's a little bit of a contradiction there. I'm I'm glad by the way that you mentioned that movie War Games. Uh, I always recommend that movie to people to this day. Just because, I mean, you know, not to spoil the ending in case anyone haven't seen it, uh, anyone hasn't seen it, but it has that great line, you know, oh, this is a funny game. No one can win, right? right. Because the kid's going to, you know, fight this. Um, yeah, I mean, he's participating in this war game and the nukes are going to go off. Um, it's just interesting how, you know, that was very prevalent in the 80s, but it seems like we've forgotten the message of that movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm not really sure that... I'm not really sure why that is. Uh, uh, there, there are many, many reasons. I, I think part of it is just where every day, if every day, if you're an American, you're you're bludgeoned with the idea that we have the world's greatest military, 
that that everyone in the military is is a hero. Uh, we see we see the military being salute saluted at, at every NFL game, at, at almost every baseball game. We we see uh, military flyovers at the Super Bowl. In fact, this past year, you know, the big the big news was that the military flyover was was all all female crewed. So you're supposed to, as Americans, celebrate the the diversity of the military, increasing diversity. So somehow it's better if the if the if the enemy is is bombed by you know female pilots or or black pilots or or some other diverse pilot. Uh, somehow, I think that uh, you know whether it's Afghan people or Iraqi people or you know people in Africa or wherever they are, they would they would prefer not to be bombed at all by uh, by Americans, irrespective of whether or not they're male, female, black, white, or anything else. You talk a little bit about Daniel Ellsberg because I, I have some younger listeners who may not even be familiar with who he was, or they may only know about the Pentagon Papers, right? Yeah, Daniel Ellsberg was was a great guy. Uh, you know, he uh, he had uh, he had the credentials. He had military credentials. He had ser- served in the Marines, uh, and then he uh, went into Rand, the Rand Corporation, as as a civilian analyst. Uh, and he before he became famous for the Pentagon Papers and leaking those when he uh, he had lost faith in the Vietnam War, uh, he had worked extensively on nuclear planning, uh, and it's for that reason that Henry, Henry Kissinger called him uh, the most dangerous man in the world. Uh, when, you know, when 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 Ellsberg started leaking the Pentagon Papers, what Kissinger was really worried about was, was that Ellsberg would reveal nuclear secrets. Uh, you know, as as I said, uh, uh, Ellsberg had, you know, he, he was aware of the estimate that said that a nuclear war would, nuclear war would result in the deaths of 600 million people, uh, which which Ellsberg memor- memorably said the equivalent of 100 holocausts, uh, which I think is a great line uh, from, from his book, uh, the, the Doomsday Machine. So, you know, before he before he died, uh, he kind of rededicated himself to, tr- to trying to get the message out there that, that we are still facing the, the threat of, of a nuclear uh, apocalypse. So, you know, I always come back to. I know you mentioned war games. Um, I'm a big Terminator fan, and and I really like Terminator Two because there is there's a great scene in there. You know where Sarah Connor Sarah Connor is sleeping, and she has a nightmare, and the nightmare, of course, is that there's a nuclear blast, uh, and it's an incredibly well done scene uh, that was actually praised by scientists as saying it it, it did a pretty good job of showing what would happen to a city and to human beings under the threat of, uh, you know, under a nuclear attack. And of course, you, you probably are familiar with the movie that came out. You know, again, I think it was when I was in college called The Day After. You know, that was, again, that was during the nuclear freeze movement. I think it was 1983. And, and that was, that was again, trying to alert Americans to the danger of nuclear weapons. But you, again, you don't really have any pressing sense that we still face this danger uh today uh and i and i think that there are various reasons for that but i all the praise to dan ellsberg for for trying to you know before he died trying to bring this back up again to all of us to say we seriously have to think about this 
I want to get into uh, your reflections uh, on visiting the Los Alamos National Laboratory and also the Trinity test site. And I know you wrote about that for uh, Tom Dispatch recently. But first, how did your views on, you know, the issue of the potential for nuclear war uh, evolve over time? Because I, I know in that article, uh, you talk about how when you were visiting Los Alamos in 1992, that you called yourself maybe a, a younger and maybe more naive version of yourself. So it's right. obvious you may have had different views in the past. How did your views on these issues evolve over time? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I, you know, it's one of those things when when you're part of an institution, and and obviously I was I was an Air Force officer. I was I was a captain at the time. Um, I was all oh, let's see. Um, I was like 29 years old when I when I think I did this and. You're part. I'm, I was part of the system. I was a. I was a. You know, sharp, you know, sharp troop. You know, salute, salute the flag, and and uh, go along with the system. Although I certainly had my my doubts even even back then. You know, I was I was reading, uh, you know, various books, and in fact, even in college, uh, you know, I was I was skeptical of what Reagan was what Reagan was up to with the you know the Sandinistas and 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 all that. Uh, so. But um, you know, going going to Los Alamos when when I went there, you know, it was it was early 1992, and it was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what was interesting was the mood there was glum. Uh, you know, this is 30 years ago, and they they're basically like, uh oh, uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we're not going to have to build a lot of nuclear weapons anymore. Uh, they were really talking about. Back then, thirty years ago, they were saying, "Well, maybe we can reinvent ourselves. You know, may, maybe maybe instead of designing bombs, we can we can design better uh, VCRs uh, and and televisions, so that the, you know, back then, the Japanese were dominating everything instead of China. So uh, you know, we thought, you know, the whole idea was United States can be more competitive with consumer goods, and we can put our minds to to better electronics and stereos and all the rest." You know, rather than building more and more bombs, and and yet, you know, here we are, thirty years later, uh, and Los Alamos is booming. Uh, you know, no pun intended, but you know, it really is booming there because because we, the United States, have committed uh, something like, you know, somewhere between one and two trillion dollars over the next thirty years to build a new ICBM known as the Sentinel. Uh, the new B-21 bomber, which is another stealth bomber like the B-2, primary mission is to is to drop nuclear bombs. And then, of course, the Navy's not going to miss out on the fun. You know, they want a new uh, submarine force to fire Trident missiles or whatever the new uh, SLBM sub-launch ballistic missile will be. So, so I, I just, to me, it's it's just so uh, it, it makes me angry, of course, but it it makes me. It makes me sad because because we really had an opportunity. You remember 30 years ago, we actually talked about peace dividends. Uh, and then Obama became president, and, and he became president talking about eliminating nuclear weapons. And yet all that went away at once he became president. So you know we have had these opportunities um, in in the past, and yet somehow we have we have failed to avail ourselves of those opportunities. And that's why we're at the nuclear precipice once again. Maybe you could talk about in that regard, what's been called 
not just the military industrial complex anymore, but the military industrial congressional complex and, you know, how war is really big business. Oh, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> war is a racket as uh, as two time Medal of Honor winner Smedley Butler. Right. Uh, the great back, Smedley Butler. Yes. You know, back in the 1930s. Uh, and he and he should know because he was he was uh, he was a gangster of capitalism as as he himself admitted. So yeah, I mean uh, Eisenhower when he gave his famous farewell speech in 1961, uh, he wanted to say we all know he said military industrial complex, but he wanted to add Congress, but but he was talked out of it at the last minute. You know he thought you know well I don't I don't want to alienate Congress, so I'll I'll, I'll leave them out, but. But but really, as as Ray McGovern says, uh, it's it's the Mickey map, right? I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's it's military, industrial, congressional, right? Then you have the 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 so-called intelligence community. Then you have everyone in media, the mainstream media, very much behind the military now. You see, very rarely do you see any criticism of of gargantuan Pentagon budgets. And then you have academia, academia and think yeah, tanks, right? And think tanks. Yeah, all of these people. Are getting billions of dollars uh, in in uh, Pentagon funding, so you're not going to see even even from so-called liberal academia, uh, you're not going to see a lot of criticism of the military because Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Johns Hopkins, where you know I got my master's from Johns Hopkins, they have a you know a school there funded basically you know it's it's a feeder. Uh, for for the think tanks and for the upper echelons of of our government, I also wanted to talk a little bit about. I know you've also visited um, Alamogordo and the Trinity test site, and you write about right. that in the article I mentioned from Tom Dispatch. Uh, I want to talk about that, and maybe uh, it seems relevant now to talk about Oppenheimer, given that we have this hit movie out now that uh, Christopher right. Nolan directed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alamogordo is a really fascinating place to visit it's it's i'm not sure if they changed it's it's on air force it's on government property and and when i visited it was only open two times a year uh so so uh you know i visited and it's 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 eerie it's an, it's an eerie place because because it's still you know it's still mildly radioactive i mean it you're all i mean if you're only there for a couple of hours you're fine but you know you wouldn't want to pitch a tent and you know build a house there uh, and you know the tower, the tower upon which they they constructed the atomic gadget, as they said. Uh, well, of course, when when the first atomic device was was exploded at Trinity uh, in July of 1945, the tower was vaporized, uh, and all that's left is the concrete pad, you know, with a few kind of twisted, uh, you know, iron rods, uh, steel rods poking out of it. Uh, but it's just, it's it's. I don't know how to. I mean, there there were just a few people walking around there when I was there, and you know there were a few people wearing masks, and this was before, of course, COVID. So to to see people outside wearing masks back in say 1992 was was a little bit of a creepy thing, uh, but I just you just had a sense that that you were in a haunted place. That's that's all I can describe it as. That's that's the sense that that I got, and yet. You know the, the 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 gadget that that blew up with such enormous force at at Alamogordo at, at Trinity is pales in comparison uh, to the thermonuclear warheads that that we have today, right? 
because I mean, basically an atomic bomb is only a trigger for the hydrogen bomb, which can be the hydrogen bombs can be a hundred to a thousand times more powerful. Yeah, I've than, always heard the the hydrogen bombs are even worse. Yeah. Oh yes, much uh, again, uh, you know, a hundred to a thousand times. You know, it, it's it's so we dropped the uh, little boy on Hiroshima and fat man on Nagasaki killed about two hundred and fifty thousand people at the end of World War II. Well, just one of these, you know, two megaton bombs uh, that's, you know, in the arsenal of Russia would would destroy million, would kill millions of people in New York City or Washington D.C. I mean, it, it's it's really on a scale that's 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 unimaginable, uh, which is why you have movies like, you know, Doctor Strangelove uh, and On the Beach and some of the other early movies of the atomic era that really did. Uh, uh, hypothesize the uh, uh, Armageddon. So then, w- with regards to the renewed talk about the Manhattan Project in light of this Oppenheimer movie, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie yet, if you have thoughts on it, but what I'm really interested in is what do you think maybe people have missed when it comes to the renewed discussion about not just Oppenheimer, but the Manhattan Project more generally? Right. Well, I, I guess I guess a couple of things um, just kind of, you know, one of the things uh, subjects I taught as a history professor was was um, I taught the history of technology and society. So so we would talk. I had my students uh, watch uh, The Day After Trinity, which is an excellent documentary by John Elsa. Uh, I, I recommend anyone who's seen the movie, you know, the new Oppenheimer movie and you want a kind of a larger context. Check out The, the Day After Trinity. Uh, which is not just about Trinity. It's it's really about the whole Manhattan Project and and what happened uh, afterwards. Uh, so, uh, what I would say is, uh, speaking uh, first, the good thing when 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 human beings put our minds to something, it's amazing what we can achieve, right? So we were able to develop a, a crash project to to build an atomic bomb in a matter of about three years, which was a remarkable achievement, even though it was. A, a diabolical uh, device where Oppenheimer said famously, you know, I've become uh, death, the destroyer of worlds. So, um, um, and then, I mean, the equivalent to that, uh, a little bit more uplifting <laughs> is the Apollo project. So we had the Apollo project in the 1960s where, where Kennedy famously said, I'm going to put, you know, we're going to put a man on the moon and return him safely to earth within a decade. And everyone thought he was pretty much crazy. Uh, and yet we did it, right? So it's amazing what we can achieve when we have the impetus to do it. And so, you know, I think if we had the same kind of energy directed uh, today at, you know, developing alternative sources of fuel, for example, you know, cleaning up the planet, uh, getting rid of the great garbage dump, the great plastic garbage dump in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and so on and so forth. You know, we, we could do so much, uh, I think, as not as Americans, but as as human beings. Unfortunately, what the Manhattan Project shows, though, also is is the omnipotence of fear. Right. Because it was fear that drove the Manhattan Project. We were afraid the Nazis were going to get the atomic bomb first. That's why we had the crash project. And it's fear or certainly certainly some fear anyway, that that we still are going to be facing you know facing a new cold war with china and 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 russia so 
here we are as a country thinking about spending $2 trillion over the next 30 years on a new generation of nuclear weapons when we could take that money, that $2 trillion, and modernize our infrastructure and create better cities and 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 everything else we could do with that money. Uh, we, we've shown what we can do as 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 Americans. Uh, and yet, you know, our energies are being misdirected. Uh, that's what I would say. I was going to say, too, it's interesting when we talk about, you know, the Manhattan Project being driven by fear. You know, the, the fate of someone like Oppenheimer, the American Prometheus, you know, fear also played a role in his fate after World War II, right? I mean, he was persecuted, uh, you know, as, oh, a, a potential communist agent or a Soviet uh, by sort of McCarthyism. So we see how, yeah. you know, this sort of fear mentality keeps driving the sort of permanent war mobilization of America. Yeah, I, I put I put it slightly differently, JG, in the sense that I think, you know, those who persecuted Oppenheimer, you know, didn't didn't fear that he was communist. I mean, they knew, they knew he was communist from the beginning. Um, you know, they they hired him despite the fact that he had dallied, you know, he had he had dallied a bit with the Communist Party. What they feared about Oppenheimer was that he was speaking out against the hydrogen bomb. He was speaking out against the Air Force's vision of of uh, basically mad, uh, mutually assured destruction. Uh, he you know he was speaking out against what he saw as the misuse of the fire that he as Prometheus had drawn down from the gods. That that's what they feared, uh, and and so they punished him. You know they they stripped him of his security clearance and and they made an example of him. When it comes to this issue of, like I said, I think we're in a culture, and we have been for a long time now, of sort of permanent war mobilization. And I really do have to say that I blame the sort of war on terror Bush era for that. Uh, what what do you think the effects of this culture of permanent war mobilization are on us? Because I I, I think people forget, you know, the Iraq war days were a very frightening time. You know, I remember going to sports events, you know, NHL hockey games where you had like uh, before the game started, you would have big military spectacles and, you know, soldiers coming down from the rafters and stuff. And it, it was it was like a war spectacle. And I think that that has really, you know, permeated the American mindset. And we're in this constant, you know, permanent war mobilization state culturally. Yeah. Well, it's exactly. I know. I I, I completely agree. Uh, but but it's curious that that although although we're sort of kept in this state of of sort of constant war, it, it's 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 a paradox in a way because even as you say that, as I as I wrote in my most recent article, you know, we we the people really aren't mobilized. It, you know, it's still it's still an all volunteer military. So there's not a draft. So if you're if you're if you're a young person, if you're turning 18 or 20, you're not worried about being drafted and 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 sent to to war, you know, wherever. Uh, and even even you know, there's no in World War II there were there were war bonds drives. There were there were drives for metal. There were you know metal scrap drives. Uh, there was the mobilization of society. You know, women went into the work workforce. We had Rosie the Riveter and all that. There's none of that now. So, but but your but your point about you know I I often make this point, uh, and 
And uh, I, I think it's something we we sometimes forget that that you know ever since 9/11, uh, so for the last you know 22 years or so, America has never known a time of peace, right? I mean, we're in a permanent state, more or less, of low-level discomfort with with a per, with permanent war against terror or something. Uh, the 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 whole idea that that peace should be normal and war abnormal has gone away. You know, now now our our standby <laughs> our standby condition, so to speak, our normal our, the new normal is war, and and the abnormal position. Uh, is is the state of peace, which is totally opposite the way a de- democracy should work. One other thing I, I wanted to get into was, I don't know if you've written about this in the past years, but I think there's a big connection between our, envi- in our environmental crisis and issues like pollution and the Pentagon, the, the military industrial complex. Uh, I've done some research and had guests on discussing, for instance, the issue of forever chemicals and how the DOD plays into that problem in America. Could you maybe speak to uh, environmental issues and how they relate to the problems of the military-industrial complex? Well, you know, uh, you know mil- military bases, uh, you know, they're, they're not subject to the same kinds of, of strict environmental rules, or they, or they didn't used to be subject you know, to the same kind of strict environmental rules and protections. Uh, and so... You know, I think of uh, uh, probably the worst site I can think of off the top of my head is the one where the the Hanford nuclear site uh, in Washington State, where where the plutonium was was originally uh, refined for for the atomic bombs, um, the the fat man that was dropped on Nagasaki, for example. The 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 amount of of environmental poisoning there, the groundwater, radiation, everything else, is is just I don't know if if it can ever be cleaned up. And then, of course, there are other areas out in Nevada and elsewhere. These areas that you know in the desert where these nuclear tests were were conducted. You know, most of the time, you know, we always think that well, you know, put it out in the middle of nowhere. But there's there's always people, right? There's always someone who lives fairly close. So so one of the things I think that came out of the Oppenheimer movie that was that was missed was you know there were people who were displaced from. Uh, Alamogordo, you know, before the atomic bomb, the atomic test uh, at Trinity was was um, was uh, was um, uh, initiated, uh, and after that, there was radioactive fallout, and that radioactive fallout did affect people. So I'm not as I'm not as familiar with with the, the you know the forever chemicals. Uh, but but nothing would surprise me. I mean, you know, it used it used to be. I know that uh, at military bases I, I I've been at there have been issues like, for example, with with firefighting foam, uh, chemicals from firefighting equipment. That's actually you know, what I was I was referring to. Right. Yeah. Right. So so I mean, the the way that we got rid of things back then was was kind of like, well, yeah, hey, Joe, just chuck it over here. Um, you know, and without thinking that, hey, these are these are chemicals that, that they don't go away quickly. Uh, you know, they 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 poison the they, they poison the soil. They po- they 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 get into the groundwater, uh, and 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 they they hang around. They they accumulate in the environment. They 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 don't break down. Uh, and and you know, it's it's one of those things where it can only help the environment 
if we downsize the military. I was going to say, too, I, I think that leads into another discussion, which is, you know, I think the issue of militarism and its effects on society ties into multiple other issues. So, like, for instance, if you're concerned with issues like policing, you right. have to talk about the issue of militarism, because, right. I mean, ever since 9-11, at least, you know, our police force has been militarized. Right. And then you look at something, if you're interested in the war on drugs, you know, all of these things, uh, I think, are very connected. Right. Oh, well, yeah, I, uh, police, police, police look very d- different now. You know, back back in my day, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't quite, say, Officer Joe friendly. But, you know, cops, cops look like, you know, police with with normal uniforms. They, they carried 38 revolvers. I mean, back back in the early 70s, it was a big deal that Clint Eastwood had a had a 44 Magnum, you know, the most powerful handgun in the world. But still, it only fired six shots. You know, now, of course, you have police carrying around, you know, not just Glocks uh, with like, you know, 16, 18 shot magazines, but, but they've got uh you know, uh, assault rifles and, and and miniature tanks. Uh, in some case, a lot of the heavy equipment that the police use today has been given to them as excess equipment from, by the Pentagon. So so we built those MRAPs uh, for the Iraq war, you know, the mine resistant uh, protective vehicles. Uh, and then we had we had an excess number of them. They didn't, they didn't really work that great on battlefield anyway. So it's like, what are we going to do with them? Well, we'll give them to police forces. So you have police forces now that are that are outfitted with, you know, had, uh, flak vests, uh, miniature tanks, uh, assault rifles, and all the rest. So in, instead of instead of the the noble beat cop who who back in the day, uh, you know, kind of looked like just a little bit like you and me, except he was wearing a, a uniform. You know, now he looks more like RoboCop, uh, and and you have the the attitudes to match. And, and quite a few, quite a few police nowadays are uh, got their first experience in in the military, uh, and you and you don't want, believe it or not, uh, you don't want police officers to think like you know military killers. Uh, I mean, you know, police are supposed to be here to protect and to serve. Uh, we the people are not supposed to be their enemy. Yeah, and I was also going to say uh, another issue that this ties into is systemic racism. Uh, because, you know, for as much as we hear things about how, uh, you know, we need a more diverse military in terms of color, creed and background. I mean, it kind of ignores you, you can wrap militarism in a rainbow flag. It doesn't make it any any less, you know, harmful to marginalized people around the world. No, that's true. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've even seen ads that the CIA is putting out, you know, the CIA uh, is putting out these ads, you know, featuring, you know, like maybe a young black female talking about how great it is to work at the CIA and, and be an intelligence operative. And it's like, well, geez, um, I don't know. Is, is, is that really progress? Uh, shouldn't we be thinking about not so much that the, 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 the CIA is a little bit more diverse. You know, it used to be that the CIA drew a lot from uh, like uh, uh, the Ivies, like from Yale, uh, also Mormons, believe it or not, because you know, one of the things about, uh, being a Mormon was some, you don't use drugs, right? So, uh, you know, when you go through the, the CIA asks you, you know, have you ever used drugs? You know, a lot of people, especially the 60s and 70s, you're like, oh yeah, I tried marijuana or I, I tried cocaine, whatever. It's like, no, nope, no, nope, you're disqualified. Whereas a Mormon, you know, someone brought up 
and as as a woman would be like, no, I, you know, I, I don't even drink caffeine because that's against. So, but anyway, I digress. Uh, I just had a friend who's Mormon who who was in the CIA, and he was talking to me about, uh, you know, the CIA and and how there's a fairly strong uh, Mormon component there, or there was. No, it really doesn't help nowadays that that some, um, you know, as uh, you know, Norman Solomon's new book, uh, he talks about the fact that that when you when you look at all of the countries where the United States uh, dropped bombs. Uh, well, yeah, or I even where they're supporting, you know, brutal right. wars of oppression, you know, the Saudi Arabia and that right. war in Yemen, the U.S. military is supporting that, you know, so I mean. Exactly. Yeah. So um, uh, basically the, the Saudis, the Saudis could not have done the, the kind of bombing raids that they did without American planes refueling them, without American made weaponry uh, and all the rest and without even in some cases, American intelligence. So, yes, I mean, uh, Obviously, uh, you know when you think about the number the people who have who have been uh, bombed and, or otherwise on the end of uh, of made in USA munitions, uh, uh, most of them, if not all, lately have been black and brown. Another thing I wanted to touch upon here was uh, you've written about the sort of Pentagon black hole uh, when it comes to the money that goes into it, and I think people don't really consider that enough, especially, you know, uh, people that aren't honed in on these issues. Can you talk a little bit about just how much of our taxpayer dollars go into the war machine? Yeah, it, it's it's the, the sum is so large that it's really difficult for people to conceive uh, because more, more than half of federal discretionary spending uh, goes to uh, the Pentagon. And what does that mean in practical terms? It uh, Roughly, uh, this year, I think the budget projected budget is eight hundred and eighty-six billion dollars, which is just an incredibly large. Uh, it's 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 a larger budget for the military than than the next ten countries in the world combined. That includes China, includes Russia, and and the other countries are American allies. So you have to ask yourself, you know, why is it that we as Americans dedicate such a huge sum of money uh, to to the Pentagon and and to the military. At the same time as we're spending this immense amount of money, the Pentagon keeps failing audits. So they have failed five financial audits in a row. So so we're we're basically throwing money at drunken sailors and telling them to spend. And no no offense to anyone from the Navy, um, <laughs> but we're we're throwing money. I'll say it, drunken airmen, uh, and just saying, here, spend more. Uh, you, we don't care that you can't account for the money, uh, but 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 you keep us safe, and, and we're going to give you even more money. Uh, so so uh, it, it's. I think we need to realize that that what we're spending all, this vast sum of money on is not for American defense. It's not for national defense. It's for an international empire. Because that's that's what the United States is is in charge of. Basically, we we are an empire, uh, and and those at the top will will if they won't use those words, uh, certainly Carl Carl Rove under Bush was willing to say we're an empire now, uh, and we do what we want. Uh, of course, we're an empire because we have seven hundred and fifty bases around the world. Uh, we we're the most powerful military. Uh, we have the most powerful military. We we throw our weight along around. Uh, and as 
I was in the Air Force for 20 years, and our motto was, you know, global reach, global power, and full spectrum dominance, meaning that basically the argument was that to keep you safe, we have to dominate everywhere. We have to we have to be dominant in the air, on land, at sea, cyberspace, space. Now we even have our own space force. <laughs> so uh, it's just absurd the amount of money we throw uh, at the military. And meanwhile, we have other issues still with like, I mean, to me, the biggest defense issue, in my view, is something like climate change. You know, right. uh, we have increasing you know, inequality uh, economically in this country. And yet it, it seems like those the resources uh, we need to address those issues are going to this Pentagon black hole budget. Right, right. And of course, the more money you give to the Pentagon uh, and the larger it becomes, the, the you know the wider it's deployed, uh, you know basically the, the Pentagon burns enough fossil fuel. Uh, I think the Pentagon accounts if the Pentagon was a country, it would burn roughly the amount of fossil fuels as the country of Sweden. Um, I think I'm roughly right there. Uh, and and so our military uses an enormous amount of fossil fuels that that contributes to to uh, to to climate change. So yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, you know, I've I've argued in the past that I, I think I think the United States military budget could be cut in half uh, and you could spend that money. And if you spend the money judiciously, we would be safer with half the amount of money that we're that we're spending now uh, as we as we downsize the empire and bring American troops back home. What for you would a you know, if we're talking in terms of foreign policy, what would a progressive foreign policy look like? Right, right. Well, I think I think one of the one of the things that uh, maybe the first thing that I would do, uh, let's say, you know, Bill Astori is a progressive and he's just been elected as president. What would I do? I think the first step I would make is I would say the United States is not going to do a first strike using nuclear weapons. I, I think that we still, the United States, we still reserve the right uh, to to launch a first strike, and and I think there's a couple of countries that a couple of nuclear powers that don't. I think maybe China and India. Uh, I think it would be very important if the United States came out and led the world and said we are not going to be the first country to use nuclear weapons, even though of course we were the first at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We're not going to do it again. Um, so I think that's number one. I think number two, I would I would commit us to I, I would I would most definitely cancel all those plans to modernize so-called uh, the, the American nuclear arsenal. So I would I would cancel the B twenty one bomber. I would cancel the Sentinel missile. I would cancel the new Columbia class uh, submarine and say no. You know we our goal is 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 to eliminate nuclear weapons uh, over time. I, I know it's not going to happen tomorrow. It may not happen in a decade, but but it is our goal to eliminate. And we're, we all want to downsize our nuclear arsenal. So I think that's 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 number two. Uh, I think the third thing is like you were saying, is we got to take a look at climate change as as a serious issue. Uh, and so you know, I would take. The, the money we save by not building all these nuclear weapons and so on uh, and launch 
a diplomatic effort. Try to get people come to come together over something. Yeah, it's right. an opportunity for cooperation rather than yes. competition between nations. Exactly. Um, on something, this is, you know, again, look what we did with, look at what we achieved with the Manhattan Project. Look at what we achieved with the Apollo Project. Uh, there's there's much we can do, I think, if, if we just set our minds to it and the right incentives are there. Uh, and so that would be, and, and then of course, the other thing is just downsizing the, the American empire. You know, we do not need 750, 800 military bases all around the world. Uh, we don't have to dominate everywhere to be to be safe, right? Uh, it's it's like the, the analogy I use is like, would would you feel safer in your apartment or your home uh, if you were just you know if you turned it into a castle uh, if you if you had a moat outside filled up with piranhas and alligators you had security cameras everywhere you had twenty seven locks on the door you had mercenary forces you had drones overhead would that it, would that really make you feel safer? Uh, that that's kind of like the United States now. You know, we have yeah, not only that, but in, in a way, a lot of the things uh, the military does that they say are keeping us safe actually creates what has been called by you know people in the CIA blowback. You know? Right, exactly. Yeah, Chalmers Johnson. Chalmers Johnson famously wrote three books, and he kind of introduced that whole blowback idea, which was a, a trade term, I think, from the CIA. <laughs> Uh, but absolutely, yeah. I mean, so, so many, so so many of. I mean, you could definitely argue, as you know, that uh, the nine eleven attacks were were blowback. I mean, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden was our guy, you know, when he was fighting the Russians, uh, when he was fighting the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, he was our guy. But 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 once the Soviets pulled out, you know, we we abandoned him, uh, and then of course we we went into Iraq. Uh, and and he saw this as a as a Saudi, you know, he saw this as American troops in the Holy Land, you know, Mecca and Medina and all that. Uh, and so, I mean, we do create a lot of trouble for ourselves. I was uh, going to say not only that, but if you actually read, uh, I believe the writings of Osama bin Laden or associated figures, one right. of the rallying cries that they would use is to say, oh, look at the military bases that the right. U.S. has all over the Arab world. And they would use that to sort of stoke resentment. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because we we see those military bases as little islands of democracy. You know, I, I, I kid you not. You know, it's like you know, American troops, you know, we're sent overseas, you know, people like, well, you know, you're you're an ambassador for America. Uh, yeah, you're going to show them the American way. Uh, and actually, what usually happens is if you've ever been to a military base overseas, um, they, they're, they're little Americas. It's like we 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 bring our you know we bring our uh our, our ice cream with us we bring our food with us we bring because we don't want anything to do with with uh with the, the way that foreigners live so so we end up being ambassadors uh but sometimes we end up being an ambassador in the sense of being ugly Americans yeah I was just gonna add to that even you know I, I think people forget if you're in you know say Afghanistan and when the U.S. military was still there, and you just have drones flying everywhere, monitoring you, basically, or you have, you know, there were cases where, you know, weddings were accidentally bombed, right? right? I mean, that actually, I think, creates terrorism. Right. No, absolutely. I remember just just real quick, an anecdote where, you know, I read about an Afghan kid, you know, they, 
it's like a you know nice sunny day and they asked him he said i hate sunny days uh it's like why do you why do you hate nice clear sunny days is there because that's when the drones fly so you know think about that you know if we're an american you know we're like hey it's yeah, let's it's a sunny day it's nice let's go out and play you know we never stop and think there might be a drone hovering at 20,000 feet or that the wedding party that we have in our backyard might be mistaken for a terrorist gathering and everyone ends up being destroyed by a hellfire missile. Closing out here, just getting back to the issue of uh, nuclear war and the risk of it. uh, What do you hope that people get out of this conversation we've been having? And how would you drive home the point that, you know, these risks are very real and we need to start thinking about them more? Yeah. Well, uh, war war is is inherently uh, risky, and and nuclear war just elevates that that risk uh, in in a in in a in, in a way that's really unimaginable. I mean, right before I got to Cheyenne Mountain, we had we had a couple of false alarms in the early 1980s, where just because of you know circuits that went wrong or or a scenario tape that was loaded into the computer that that showed an attack, and we you know we thought it was real. Uh, you know, there were B-52s scrambling with nuclear bombs heading toward the Soviet Union until we figured out that 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 this was a mistake. So there have been a lot of accidents. You know, we we accidentally dropped nuclear bombs on Spain uh, that fortunately didn't explode. There was a Titan nuclear missile that that almost exploded here in the United States. I mean, this is something that that we need to take uh, you know very seriously. Uh, and I guess from my perspective, uh, something that always stayed with me, you know, one day I was in the missile warning center in Cheyenne Mountain. This was this was in the 1980s. And it was it was during one of these war games, in fact, uh, where we load scenario tapes and we make pretend that we're having a war. Uh, and, you know, I, I was watching one of the, our computer monitors, which were low tech back then. It was just kind of like green and white. But I, you know, I saw the missile tracks. The now, of course, again, these were these were fake missile tracks, but it was loaded in on a scenario tape to simulate a war. I saw those missile tracks leaving the Soviet Union, crossing the North Pole, and ending, terminating in American cities. Uh, and I, I, so I could, I was sitting next to uh, a guy who's like, well, you know, there, you know, there goes Kansas City. Uh, and and we we're all we, again. We all knew it was phony. We knew we knew it was fake. We knew it was just a scenario. But that brought home to me because I just thought to myself then. And we all you know it was quiet. We we're all like thinking to ourselves. I think, what if this was real? What if this has happened? I, I I'm not trying to keep you overly long, but I did want to ask. And I I know I sort of asked it before, but just to maybe have you elaborate more if you're open to it. Was there ever a decisive point for you where you said, you know, I'm I'm really worried that the militarism, the sort of empire building is, you know, destroying the country. It's destroying the country I love. Well, was there a decisive turning point for you? Uh, I, I would say no. I mean, there, there wasn't there wasn't a there wasn't a, a, a Saul on the road of Damascus moment where where, you know, I just had a, had an epiphany. I, I think I think it was gradual. Uh, I think partly partly it was just my my education, you know, just kind of thinking over 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 time. Certainly, 
you know, I, I think I think once I retired from the military in, in 2005, yeah, I obviously once you retire, you feel a little bit more open, you know, a little bit f- uh, more free, ironically, <laughs> uh, to to speak your mind without breaking ranks, so to speak. Certainly, I mean, there are things that angered me. Like I remember, I remember it really made me angry what happened with Pat Tillman, uh, and the way the Army covered up Pat Tillman's death was something that was a galvanizing moment for me. Uh, and and then when I wrote my first Tom Dispatch article in, in 2007, what was really angering me back then, and that finally, I guess, got me off my butt to start writing, was, was the way I saw Bush Cheney hiding behind the bemetalled chest of General David Petraeus. That, that you know, we all knew the Iraq, the Iraq war was going very poorly, that the war was basically lost, uh, and and yet, you know, it was it was it was General Petraeus who was you know kind of celebrated as the new American Caesar almost, you know, put up there on on TV screens uh, to reassure us that uh, that that we could still win. Although, if you recall, he always said the the gains in Iraq were fragile and reversible. Uh, and it was a, is a repeat of the kind of testimony that we used to get in the Vietnam War, the five o'clock follies, you know, the idea, you know, look behind me at these charts. These charts are showing that we're winning in Vietnam. We're winning in Iraq. And yet, you know, a few years later, you know, we, we've lost. Uh, and so I guess it's those things that the all of it kind of combined that that brought me to where I am today. And, and also, I know that you uh, ended your most recent article uh, with a little quote from scripture. And uh, I, I wanted to bring it up because like you, I had a Catholic upbringing. Uh, oh, good. But you, co- you quoted a pre- piece of scripture, uh, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, maybe you could just explain why you wanted to use that quote at the end of your latest piece. Well, I, I you know, it makes me think, I, I just came up with this line today. I need to write an article that's called, you know, the United States, the United States military has, has victory disease without the victories, right? You know, it's been so long since since we've had a clear-cut victory. I think the last one was was really World War II, which is why there's so many movies made about World War II. You know, we were we were we were more than at any other time. We were the good guys, uh, and we did win. <laughs> so uh, with a lot of help, of course. But uh, but the, the problem is what what gets me about the military today is is all the bragging and boasting that we do, right? Uh, our, our leaders, whether it be uh, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin or Obama or Bush, it's it's become obligatory to say that the United States has the world's greatest fighting force. I mean, they've even said we we have the world's greatest fighting force in all of history, right? Which for me, as a historian, a military historian, you know, I, I'm like, Really? I mean, I go back into history and I think to myself, what about the the Mongols? What about uh what about the Roman Empire? Uh, you know, what what about all these other great military empires? Uh what about Napoleon? I mean, you can go back in time and and think of so many other uh military empires. But but the second part of the question is if we're a democracy, why should we be boasting? about having the world's greatest military since forever. 
that's not what a democracy is supposed to be boasting about. So, so I mean, I think there's there's a there's even though uh, you know we both had a rough upbringing because we were raised Catholic, uh, we were both exposed to a lot of wisdom. Uh, I learned from, a lot of valuable st- things from uh, my Catholic upbringing, so I would agree. Yeah, we we should we should have another talk about about the burden of being raised Catholic. Uh, but but no, in all seriousness, um, you know, it's it's hubris and pride that 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 leads you into so many calamitous things, right? You know, when we when when we think we know it all, when we think we're the best, uh, that's when something comes along to to humble you, and I and I think we need to remember this. I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you again, uh, William Story, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? All right. Well, I I, I have my blog, uh, Bracing Views, uh, and it's on Substack uh, as well as uh, WordPress. Uh, if anyone still goes on WordPress. <laughs> But all the cool people now are apparently on Substack since it's easier to make money. Uh, so bracing views. And then I also write uh, a lot for uh, TomDispatch.com as well. Yeah. And I, I just want to add, Tom Dispatch has been a great website over the years. Tom Englehart does a great job with that. No, he's 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 been doing it now for, for over 20 years. It, it's 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 nine, you know, 9-11 in the Afghan war that, that got Tom Englehart started and it's remarkable the 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 number of articles he puts out as as well as the 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 quality. I mean, if people aren't familiar with Tom Dispatch, yeah, you need to check that out. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with William Astori and Tom Hartman. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.